If you would open your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as we're doing that, our kids are dismissed to Kids Dome. First Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians 15 and verse 1, when you got it, say so. And the word of the Lord says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. Lord, thank you. For your word that is truth. Thank you for your word that sets us free. Thank you for the privilege to be able to communicate your word with your people. And I just pray, Spirit of the Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what you are saying to your church. I pray that you would be glorified, Lord God. I pray that we would be edified and I pray that we would be active doers of your word, God. I pray that we would respond to you in faith in the areas where we need to, God. I pray that you would have your way in and through our lives. Use me. These next few moments, I pray this in Jesus' good name. Someone said, Amen. you may be seated in the presence of the Lord. So if you need an outline, please raise your hand. Just hold it up so that way the ushers can get you an outline. Uh, it's very important to me that you have the outline so you can at least follow along at the beginning of the sermon. It's also important to me that you have the outline so that way you can continue to study on your own. You can write notes. Um, there's a few questions there that are in the outline for you as an individual. You can ask, what do you, what do you feel the Lord has spoken to you today? Uh, one thing that I do realize is that um, I may say a thousand things and maybe ten of them are like specific for you. Hello. Right? I'm not so you know, up on myself that I think every single word that I say is exactly what you need. But what I do know is that God will speak to you. Amen? Just keep those hands up. The ushers are going to find you. Keep them up. Keep them up. Glory to God. I know, I know you want to wave them down. Glory to God. But they're, they're getting there, right? There's a lot of hands up. And so today we are continuing in our series, our core four series. And what I want you to understand about this series is, is and, and especially today, Today, we are going to go over a lot of scriptures. Say a lot of scriptures. When I say a lot of scriptures, I don't think that I have ever done this before. I mean, I was like, man, should I do this? And I'm like, yes, I should do this. Amen. And we, we're going we're gonna to go through a lot of scripture. Now, what I did was, um, as I asked our media team to help me out so that way you're not sitting there trying to flip to all of the scriptures, um, you know, trying to... Um, you know, find every single place that I'm going to reference. So we're going to work together. We're going to have the, the scriptures posted up here, most of them. And so that way you're able to, um, you know, to, to, to follow along with me because I really want you to get this, okay? And I say that to you as a, as, a, as a warning because, you know, a lot of times our minds can wander. Like I said, I may say a thousand things and 10 of them may really be specific to you. But what I want you to know is you should pay attention to all 1,000. 
Amen, right? Don't think, well, Bishop said only 10, because then you fall asleep, and then you miss the 10, right? Be like, what? I missed it, right? So don't fall asleep. You know, stay engaged in the message here. And so we're looking at this particular portion of Scripture, and this is one of my favorite portions of Scripture when it comes to um, the Resurrection Sunday, right? Whenever we celebrate Easter, I love to go to this Scripture because it is such a powerful Scripture. But what I want you to know is that we should be celebrating the resurrection at all times, amen? We should consistently be meditating on, considering the realities of the gospel. And that is what the Apostle Paul does here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as he is closing this book to the Corinthian church, communicating to them this gospel, bringing to remembrance unto them what he says to them is of first importance. I want you to notice in my translation, which is a New King James Version, he says in verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you first of all, and other versions says, of first importance. And what I want you to get is that word in its Greek, it means the first, it, it, is that, that's what it means, that's the essence of it. It wasn't just the first thing that he preached because that was the first thing that he preached, but it was the thing that was of most importance. The Apostle Paul, he communicates clearly in the book of Romans and other places that he wanted to do one thing and that was to preach Christ and Christ crucified, amen? He wanted to make sure that we understood that our lives completely and totally rest upon the power of the gospel. And so in this second part or third, third message in the Core 4 series, today we're going to talk about the gospel, the motivation for our affection. Because remember, we're talking about loving God. And so the last two weeks, what we dealt with was we dealt with who God is, right? We, we exha went and exhausted as much as we could and the time that we had. And so... I made sure that you understood clearly, as clearly as I could point out in the scriptures, who God is. And today, when we talk about loving God because he's the object of our affection, I want to talk about the motivation for our affection. See, the reason you and I should love God is not because of the car we drive. It's not because of the house that we have. It's not because of the job that we have. We should appreciate God for those things for sure. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be thankful for those things. We shouldn't, we shouldn't love God, oh, because of the wife he gave us or the husband he gave us, you know, and, or, or the children he gave us. Hey, man, somebody. Right? We, 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 should, we should be appreciative of those things, but the, the direct and, and, and most motivation that we should have for loving God should be found and rooted in the gospel. Because you know what the reality is? Your job could fire you tomorrow. I hope that doesn't happen to anyone, all right? If it happens, I wasn't trying to prophesy that over you. I'm just saying, right? Your job could let you go tomorrow. You could, I mean, there's people that, are, seriously, all jokes aside, they thought they were going to work on a Monday. They showed up. The gates were locked up, and there was no job for them. I mean, those things happen, right? You know, situations occur in marriages where that amazing spouse that you married, you know, three years ago, five years ago, 30 years ago. Hello, somebody isn't so amazing anymore. And are you going to stop loving Jesus because they're not so amazing? They're still amazing. You just got the wrong attitude. Or maybe they do, but, but nonetheless, that's a, that's a marriage topic. Today we're not dealing with marriage, right? But ultimately, the reality is, you know, sometimes our kids aren't exactly how we want them to be. Hello. Situations change. But what I want you to know is that the gospel doesn't. God doesn't change, therefore your love toward him should not change. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that every single time that I think about God, I'm going to have the same emotion? No, doesn't mean that. I remember going to a conference one day to a, to a gentleman. His name is Jonathan Dodson. He wrote a book, I think it's called um, Gospel gospel Center Discipleship, something like that. And as he was sharing about that book, the first time I ever heard a pastor confess this, he said, you know, sometimes I have to wake up in the morning and I have to say, God, forgive me because I don't want to be in your presence today. God, forgive me because I don't want to pray today. God, forgive me because I don't want to open the word of God today. I know that you think that pastors are just super spiritual, like we walk on clouds and we wake up in the morning like, hallelujah. 
Like we roll out of the bed speaking in tongues. Shonda, no, no, no. Sometimes that happens, right? But it's not like every day that that occurs. We, you know, we all have these issues. And so the point of the matter is, what I want you to realize is that the gospel gives us the hope that we need to continue to grow in our love and our affection toward God Almighty. And so what we want to look at is the, is the motivation for our affection. If you look at your outline here, the mystery or the deep things of God are found in the gospel. And I want you to realize this because there's plenty of people out there that are looking for deep things, right? There are plenty of people that are looking for something deeper. They just want to be deep. Like Pastor Adler would say, they need the scuba gear. They're so deep, right? You can't even have a conversation with them because they're so deep, glory to God. Just spiritual, right? And, 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 and I'm all for spiritual deep and all that kind of stuff. But can I tell you something? The depths, the depths and the riches of God are found in the gospel. There's something called the meta-narrative of Scripture, and that is the big picture of Scripture. If you look at Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, you know, and different people have different ways of looking at it. You know, some people will talk about the creation, then the fall, then redemption, and then reconciliation, and so, you know, restoration, and so, you know, that might be one meta-narrative. The one that I really like the best is this. It is what God did, how man messed it up, and what God's doing to fix it, Right? That, that, that's what the scriptures are all about from beginning to end. That, that, that is what it is. And so the point of the matter is, is that, you know, we can look at stories like David and Goliath. Like I told you when I was a kid, that was my favorite story in the scriptures. It's still one of my favorite for sure. But can I tell you something? There's, there's a bigger reality than just David slaying a giant. That's, there's, there's a bigger reality than that that's there that's locked up in the gospel and what God was doing and what God was communicating. But you miss those things when you just look at the Bible, you know, as just like history and, and some areas or you look at the Bible as a storybook or you look at the Bible as just principles for life. What I want you to realize is that the scriptures are much more than that. And when we look at the full breadth of the scriptures, that is what we will find in it. And so we should be moved to the depths of God through what? The gospel of who God is. And let me tell you something. When you try to get deep outside of the gospel, you get weird. When you try to get deep outside of the scriptures and you, you, know, you try to get all spiritual, then you end up moving into things that are not bringing glory to God. They, they might feel good. Hello. You know, they might, be, they, they might be sensational, but that does not make them God-glorifying. That doesn't make them something that is really deep in God's eyes. It can be something that is completely leading you astray. And so continuing in the outline here, the reality that a holy, loving, sovereign God would love his creation so much that he would literally die for them to save them who didn't want to be saved and would literally plead with them to be saved. Did you get that right there? It's not like God died for people who wanted them to, who wanted him to die for them. That isn't what Jesus did. Jesus died for people who didn't want to be saved. People didn't want, Jesus, what did Jesus, the first words Jesus communicated from the cross were what? Father, forgive them. Why? Because they know not what they do. Because they wanted to kill the one that came to save them. Right? And so when we look at this, I mean, they, 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 then he, and then what he does afterwards, it's not like he just dies, but he literally pleads with them to be saved through us as we proclaim the gospel. Um, the evangelism ministry, as they proclaim the gospel, we are pleading with people to be saved through the preaching of the gospel and the conviction of the Holy Spirit is the deepest unsearchable truth we can ever know. Can I tell you why we can never understand this fully? It's because we can't understand a God that is like that. We can't, listen, I, I know this much, you know, I can, I can accept rejection for a certain period of time, but, you know, I can't accept rejection forever. You keep rejecting me, I'll be like, all right, man, peace. 
I'm not going to continue on after you. And you know what? God is relentless in his pursuit of us. He's relentless in his love toward us. That's, the, that, that, that's what we find in this gospel picture, that no matter how many times we spit in his face, no matter how many times we sin against him, no matter how many times we dishonor him, no matter how many times we go against him, he still pursues us with love. That's the beauty of the gospel that we're talking about today. The gospel much, second paragraph here, um, the gospel must be, must be preached because it keeps the first thing first. And I want, and, and I want you to, I want to emphasize thing. I didn't say things. I said the first thing first, which is the gospel. That is the thing. It is singular. The great commission to make disciples must be our number one priority. Discipleship is twofold. It is evangelism, the making of the disciple, and edification or the nurture, the strengthening of the disciple. And what happens is every week in here, I do my best, and this week I'm going to walk you through it for the whole sermon, but in every sermon, I look for the place, not just to say it, just to say it, but it has to be there where I can proclaim this glorious gospel to you. Because I want you to maintain, listen, it is not about how great you are, how great I am, how wonderful you feel. It is about a God who created you with a purpose, and he wants to redeem and continue to build you up as his son and his daughter. And the gospel has to be there before you because you know what, then, like I just said earlier, you get caught up in the car you're driving, the job you have, the promotion you're seeking. You get caught up in all of these other things, and you forget about the first thing, which is the gospel, which is supposed to be my motivation for all of life. The reason I live the way that I live is not because I'm trying to earn something from God. It is because God earned everything for me on the cross already, and I just want to give him glory and give him honor. I'm not worried about going to hell because, you know what, I believe that he secured me, he redeemed me, he delivered me from sin, and so I'm not worried. I'm not concerned about that. I'm not trying to run away from hell. Jesus already separated me from that. What I want to do is I want to glorify him, and you want to know why? It is because I understand and I am growing more and more every day to come to the realization of what this gospel really means for my life. And so today we'll talk about that. The Apostle Paul and the rest of the, this is the last paragraph in your outline. The rest of the apostles were committed to the central message of the gospel. If the gospel is not consistently preached, the church won't be gospel-centered. We will either become legalist or antinomian and both are detrimental to our faith. See, if the gospel is not preached, and I'll become a legalist, and this is what happens. I want you to get this. When I look at legalism, it's not that I don't, you know, and I, I'll give you some examples of some things that people would say nowadays are legalistic things. Like, I don't watch rated R movies. I, I probably don't watch most PG-13 movies. I don't listen to certain types of music because they do not glorify God. I, and, and I won't even listen to certain people because even though their music doesn't necessarily not glorify God, it doesn't glorify, it, it glorifies self, and just they are not Christian, and so so, you know, some people would call that being legalist. You know, some people, you know, you, you don't watch TV in your home. And they have this mindset that that's being a legalist. Can I tell you something? If you're doing it with the right reason, that's between you and your God. Are you hearing me? See, what makes someone a legalist is when I am doing it for the wrong reason. When I'm doing it because I feel like I have to do this because if I don't, then God is going to strike me dead. That's, that, that's the issue. These, see, because we should be seeking, and I know, I, I know it's, it's nice and quiet right now. See, we should be seeking not how free we can be, but how holy we can be. Isn't that what our men learned? It was something like that, right? We shouldn't be seeking, you know, how, how free I can just do whatever I want to do. I should be seeking God. How can I be more like you? 
How can I be more like you in character, more like you in attitude, more like you in my action? That should be the heart of someone who is really motivated by the gospel. And so legalism, it has nothing to do with that. The other part of legalism is when you try to force it on other people. When you try to force it to be a certain way. Now, antinomianism, that's one word. It means what? It means without law or lawless. So it would be a person who is a liberal, not someone who is liberated, but someone who's liberal. See, if I'm not preaching the gospel, I become a legalist because I'm trying to earn things from God, and I feel like I have to do something to get something. And then the other side of it, antinomian, is I start to feel like, hey, I just get a part of the gospel that I don't have to do anything. I can't do anything to earn my salvation, so I'm free to live how I want to live, and that's a lie too. Amen? And so the gospel continues to move us to the place of obedience before the Lord. And so here's the big idea that I want you to get today. Good news is only truly good news when it's relative news. I'll say that again. Good news is only truly good news when it's relative news. Now, I don't want to put you all out there, but I'm sure some of you played this lottery the other day. And let me tell you something. For you... Those numbers that came up didn't mean anything. You were disappointed. But for someone, that was good news. Hello, somebody. It was truly, you were looking at the same numbers they were looking at, but it was doing something different inside of them than you. You were over there like, man, I missed that one. Man, I missed that one. I can't believe it. I had all these things planned. God, I was going to glorify you. How come you didn't give me this thing? I know how y'all were thinking, right? You were like praying over them, over them things like, Father God, in the name of Jesus, I'm going to do so much for the kingdom. But for that person who was sitting there with that ticket and they were looking at their numbers coming out, they were like, oh, they were getting excited, right? They were getting stirred up. They, I mean, they, they probably fell out. I don't know what happened to them. But all I know is that it was good news to them, right? And so what I want you to get is that when it comes to the gospel, it's the same thing. If you don't present the gospel in its totality, it won't be truly good news. Are you here? It won't be really good news to someone. Like when you just come up to someone and say, Jesus loves you. Can I tell you something? That may sound real cute and that may sound real spiritual. And I believe that it's a truth. But can I tell you that some people be like, yeah, what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. You can go up to someone and say, Jesus died for you. What does that mean? Like, I, like wh why would Jesus die for me? How about this one? You know, God wants to save you. That sounds real spiritual, doesn't it? It's the truth, right? God wants to save you from hell. People be like, save me from what? No, you tell someone, I'm saved. Saved from what? They don't know. And so today, my hope is that as we go through these 50,000 scriptures we'll go through, that you will understand how to make the, the good news, right, the gospel, how to make it clear for people. And so we'll talk about the bad news, the good news, and how this applies to ourselves. And so um, say this after me. Say, the bad news, bad news. makes the good news relevant. The bad news makes the good news relevant. And so if there is one thing that we cannot afford to get wrong, it is the gospel. In the book of Galatians, you can write the scripture down. We won't go over this one. But in the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verses 6 through 11, the apostle Paul speaks clearly about there being only one true gospel and people who try to distort the gospel being accursed. So if you get the gospel wrong, if you're preaching the wrong gospel or a false gospel, then what the Bible says is that you are a curse. There is one true gospel. We can call all kind of different stuff the gospel, but the truth is there's one true gospel. And so what is the full gospel, right? The full gospel is this. It is God, man, meaning sin and death, Jesus the Savior, who lived, was crucified and resurrected, and then new life, which is justification, sanctification, and glorification by grace. I'll say that one more time in case you're writing notes. The full gospel is God, 
It is man, meaning sin and death. It is Jesus, the Savior, who lived, was crucified, and resurrected. And it is new life, justification, sanctification, and glorification by grace. And so whenever we talk about the gospel, where do we start? We start with God. Because the Bible starts with God. And so the Bible assumes God. It reveals God, as we talked about in the last couple of weeks, as sovereign, almighty creator who created all things good, right? And so by God creating everything good, what does that show us about God? Is that he is good. Say, God is good. And so the way he creates everything shows us this. God creates man. Get this, guys, and ladies in this place. God creates man in his own image and likeness and blesses man, giving him authority and responsibility, showing that God is what? He's gracious. He didn't have to do any of that stuff, but he chose to do it, so he shows it that he's a gracious God. He creates us in his image and in his likeness so that way we represent him, and he communes with man, showing God as relational. We see this in Genesis 1 through 2. And so the gospel moves from God, and then we get into Genesis chapter 3, and we see something that happens. So I said the first thing, the gospel starts with God, and I'm going to go quick through this. The second part is it goes to man. It goes to how man falls and how man sins against God. The gospel moves to the bad news about man. So the good news is what? God created us in his image. He created us in his likeness. There was nothing wrong in us. There was no sin in us. Man, Adam and Eve were not sinful. Why? Because their father was God, just like Jesus. Hello. Are you here? They weren't sinful until they, until they did what? Until they committed sin. So God creates them. He's the one that makes them. And so they are what? They're, they don't have sin. But when they decided to disobey God, then what happens? They bring sin into the world. Specifically, Adam brings sin into the world. And so what we got to realize is this, is that God gave them one prohibitive command. One prohibitive command. That was it. He gave him some positive. He blessed them. He said what? Be fruitful, multiply, right? Fill the earth, subdue it, right? Have control. He gave him all these positive commands. He gives him one prohibitive one. He says, don't touch that tree. Well, don't eat from that tree is what he said. And they decide, well, we're going to break that one command. Which tells me that if God just gave us one command, we would break it. Forget the 600 and something that are there for the Israelites. I'm just saying, if he gave us one, we'd break it, right? So the reality is that God, we move into that place and we realize that death is God's judgment showing God as not solely loving and good, but also as righteous and just and punishing sin. So how does this affect our standing with God? What does sin do? Sin separates us from God. Sin, that's what sin did. When Adam and Eve sinned, they ended up what? They ended up being kicked out of the garden. They couldn't eat from the tree of, 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 of life, of eternal life, because then they would have been like God and lived eternally like that. And so then what we see in Greek mythology would have been a reality, but that's not what God wanted. And so what we see here is that we have God who, who shows himself this way. So here is the question. The question is, are all men sinful? Now, this is when we're going to start getting into some scriptures here. So the first thing I want you to, I, I need you to understand is that everyone, say everyone. Not some people, not a few people, not just those people that you know they're sinful. No. Because there's some people that you just know, like, yes, they are sinners. They are sinners for sure. Like, there is no question, right? Like, you know, like, yep, they're a sinner. <laughs> Everybody is under the same condemnation. Everyone who is born into this earth with a biological father has this issue. Look at Romans 5.12. Are you with me? All right, Romans 5.12, I'm going to turn, turn around and read these scriptures with you guys. So Romans 5.12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death, what does it say? Spread to all men, because all sinned. 
And so this is what the scriptures say. It's not what I'm saying. It's not what some theology somewhere said. It's not what, what some system of belief. Obviously, it's within systems of belief. But this is the truth, that all men have sinned. And so we see this, that all men have this same sin issue. It reveals that man's sin problem, original sin or Adamic sin, affects everyone who is born to a biological father. Psalm 51 in verse 5. Psalm 51 and verse 5, David is saying this. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And so we see David communicating in the Old Testament that he was born into sin. Look at Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. And it says here, it says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin, as it is written. Therefore, I mean, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not. So is there one good? Not according to the scriptures. Romans 3.23, y'all know this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? This is part of the Romans road to salvation. And then we have John, 1 John, I love this. This is, this is what, I, what I call my grace sandwich here, right? So 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 through 10, it says this. It says, if we say that we have no sin, in other words, we say that we don't have sinful nature, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This, this, this is the sandwich part. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then the, the, the last part of the sandwich is, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so what do we realize here? We realize that we deceive ourselves and make God a liar if we say that we don't have sin. But God offers us forgiveness. But you have to acknowledge what? That you have sinned and that you have sinned. And so notice it's two different things. One of them is sin, singular, talking about our nature. The other one is sinned. It's, and it's talking about what? It is talking about what we have done, talking about our actions. So we are born into sin, but we also decide to sin. Some of you know this when your, you know, newborn was waking you up at all hours of the night. You knew they were sinners. You didn't know. It was something, something you knew. There was something wrong with this. Like, hold on a second. I need to send this thing back, right? I can't even sleep. I can't even think, right? Because this one's got me up at all times, right? And so this is just a reality. So we are all, right, we're, we're all sinful. This is what the scriptures teach us. I know this isn't so encouraging, but it is not supposed to be encouraging. It is supposed to be discouraging because what? Because I'm going to bring you the good news, right, which makes this, you know, which makes this matter. And so the great issue with sin is that it requires judgment. The wages of sin is death, according to Romans 6.23. I think we have that scripture, right, Romans 6.23? Did I give you that one? Yes, all right. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I want you to look at this one here. <clears throat> look at... Um, Sorry, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 1 through 10. We're going to read this. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the, uh, of the Thessalonians and God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. 
so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecution and tribulation that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Now check this out. Which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted, is that the same one that you may be counted worthy of the I think we read that did we I think I skipped something there anyway okay which is the manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give now listen to this and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with not just like a little while, right? Everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in the day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. So you heard that, right? There's, there's some issues there when we look at someone who is in sin, right? God shows a graphic picture to us in, in 2 Thessalonians. At the end of the year, I'm going to do a, a sermon through 1 and 2 Thessalonians. But what I want you to see here is that God shows us that there is eternal judgment for sin. Right? When someone sins, it's not like, hey, man, I just sinned and, you know, I'm going to go sit in a corner for a little while. Or, like, I'm going to breathe my last breath and I'm going to go into a holding cell for some period of time and then I'm going to be set free. That isn't what happens. It's eternal and everlasting judgment that people are going to experience. And so the reason why this is so important is because, first of all, in general, most people think they aren't that bad and really don't need saving. Hello. You've had those conversations, right? Second, it addresses why there is evil in the world, man's sinfulness, right? And so the reason why we need to understand that we are sinful, born into sin, is because it addresses those issues. It's not because God is bad. It's because men, because creation is sinful. One of the things that I, I love this illustration, and for me, you know, it, it, it's, um, it, it's, it, it's, it's, it's a reality that, you know, you look at people, right, and people talk about there is no God. And, you know, someone gave this good illustration and said, okay, well, there's no God. Well, how do you prove that? Well, look at all the evil in the world. Look at all the stuff that is going on in this world. And then someone said, okay, well, let's look around. And he looked at a bunch of people that they hadn't had their hair cut in a long time. And he said, so I guess that proof for those hairdos right there mean that there are no barbers. The reality is it wasn't that there weren't any barbers. It was that nobody was going into the barber's shop. People were not going to. And so it's the same thing when we look at God. It's the same situation. Evil is in the world because men are sinful and they choose their ways over God's ways. It's just a reality. They ignore the grace of God. And then the third thing is it levels the ground for all men. See, here's the thing. If some of us are sinful and some of us are not, then it's not fair. But you know what God does? He levels the ground. We're all sinful. We all come into the same thing. None of us have, have extra rights, nothing like that. And so another good question is what is sin? And I'll give you this. Um, first, first John 3, 4 gives us the clearest answer. It says sin is lawlessness. Sin, by definition, is to miss the mark. What is the mark? God's laws are the mark or standard we are called to aim for in our daily walk as believers. And so in the Old Testament, we have the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. 
And so today, we are not responsible for the civil law, obviously, because we are not Hebrews and we don't live in Jerusalem, right? We are responsible for the civil laws of our nation where we live. We are also not responsible for the ceremonial laws because of what? Because Jesus died and he was the last sacrifice that had to be made, so no longer do we have to offer those type of sacrifices. But when it comes to the moral law, here's where some people get it twisted. They think that we're no longer accountable to the moral laws of God, and this is not true. We're still called not to lie. We're still called not to commit adultery. We're still called not to covet. We're still called to worship God and God alone. We're still called to honor our father and our mother. We're still called to keep the Sabbath holy. And that may not be on a Saturday, but it is to sanctify a time for you to rest and worship God in that time. And so we are still called to do all of those things. There's no question about that, right? This is what the scriptures teach us. But here's the reality. The reality is that we all fall short. We miss the mark. And so I said this before, and you know, some of you weren't in here, and even if you were, it's a good reminder. Whenever you hear me say the word that we're sinners, I want you to think this way. We are mark missers. That's what it is. See, when someone can come and prove to me that they never missed the mark, then I will relinquish the thought that we're sinners. I'll, I'll, I'll let it go. But the truth is that God's standards, and we're going to look at this in a moment, God's standards are so pure, so holy, so righteous, that no matter how, sometimes we may hit the mark, but we don't always hit the mark. You know, there may be a day that I am the perfect husband. Notice I said a day. And I said maybe in future tense. So there may be, okay, a day that I am a perfect husband. And you know what I'm pretty assured of? I'm pretty assured of the fact that it will be a day, and it may not even be a whole day. It will be a moment in that day. I'm just saying, right? It will be a moment in that day. It will be a mo- it's not going to be every single day from all of a sudden. No, but what I do is what? Is I grow in the grace of God. I grow in the power of the Spirit. So here's what we have. We have that we are mark missers. We miss the mark of God's standards. And so the first thing that we see is that man has a sin problem. Say man has a sin problem. So the first part of the bad news is that we have a sin problem. The second thing is say man has a death problem. So the first thing that, that, sin, that, that, that comes into this world is sin, and then it brings us to this place of death. And the Bible speaks of three types of death. The first one is spiritual, the second one is physical, the third one is eternal. This is the bad news of the gospel, y'all, so it's not going to get any better yet. But here's the thing. Ephesians 2 verse 1. Can we look at that real quick? Ephesians 2 verse 1, it says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. What is he talking about? He is speaking to the Ephesian people, and he's talking to them about their condition before they were born again. He is saying, you were, you were dead, not taking a nap. He didn't say, you were sick. That isn't what it says, is it? I've said this before. You know what dead means, right? Dead. Right? There's no, like, deep Greek, right? Just, dead is dead, <laughs> right? Like, we're only the Hebrew here. It means dead. Like, no matter how you look at it, it means no life. It means no ability. It means that you are dead. It's like when you walk into a morgue, right? People aren't jumping up because you scared them. People aren't laying on gurneys in the morgue like, hey, I'm just a little sick over here. That's not it. They are dead. So the Bible talks about spiritual death, right? The second type of death is physical. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 7, it says, It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment, right? So what happens when he's talking about that death? He's talking about physical death. And then let's look at eternal. Look at Jude chapter 1. Well, there's only one chapter in Jude. but By by the way, that's my memory book for this year. I'm going to memorize Jude. Um, You know, our guys, they're memorizing 1 Peter. I'm like, yo, y'all are like some overachievers. I I applaud you guys. Hey, give those guys a hand, right? They're they're memorizing 1 Peter. Y'all got to give them a better hand than that. That's a whole, that's a lot of scripture. 
I'm going to memorize Jude this year. But here's the thing. Look what it says here. Jude is speaking. He said, these are spots in your love feast. He's talking about people that are in the church while they feast with you, um, while they feast with you, you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without rain, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever, eternal death. This is what the scriptures talk about. And so we have physical death. We have spiritual death. We have eternal death. And remember this, death is what? It is a judgment against sin. Now, I want you to get this. Everybody who dies, it isn't because they are sinning, right? People, you know, sometimes we think someone gets sick. It's because they sinned or something like that. They die in a sickness. God chooses not to heal them. That's not necessarily true. What I want you to realize, though, the only reason why that sickness is in this earth is because of what? Sin. Okay, so we have this. So man has a sin problem. Man has a death problem. Man has a good works problem. Say that with me. Man has a good works problem. And so the first thing is every man is under the condemnation of sin. We see that everyone is. We see that everybody is under that same judgment of death that is, that, that's going to come upon all humanity experience this to some extent. Eternal death is the only one that we can escape, right, because we're all born spiritually dead. And then we continue to grow, and then, you know, we're going to all experience physical death, but we can overcome what? Eternal death because of what Jesus does. But man has another problem, and this is man's good works problem. Good works don't work in earning God's favor. Are you here? No matter what we do, the Scriptures teach us that our works are not good enough. I don't care how good you think you are. Listen, even on my best day, my best day is not good enough to please God. My best day is not good enough to say, hey, Jason, come on up to heaven, man. You're amazing. It's never like that. It's just, it is just not like that. And it's not because I'm walking around doing all kind of crazy, heinous sin. Listen, I can be in the midst of fasting and prayer on my face here in this church, never leaving the building. And that's what I would consider my best day because I'm not tempted by anything other than my stomach, you know, and I can get past that after a little while. But the reality is even on that day, I'm still not good enough to get into God's presence on my own. Okay, let me prove this to you. The book of Isaiah, chapter 64 and verse 6, you guys should know this one. It says, but we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Now, I want you to get this. And all our righteousness, righteousnesses, right? That's what it says there. It's not a typo because they didn't type it. All our righteousnesses. I like, that's crazy. All of our righteousnesses are like, I like saying it, are like filthy rags, right? Now, now most of you know this. I just want to reiterate this. What is he talking about when he, and this, this is graphic, but look, the Bible is graphic. Y'all know that, right? I'm just saying. And so what, when he's talking about filthy rags, he is literally talking about menstrual rags. He's saying all of our righteous works are like menstrual rags in comparison to who God is. In comparison to who God, and in comparison to God's standards. Now, that's nasty, man. I'm just saying. But that's what he says. Our works, our righteous works are like that nasty, like you thought, like that mental picture. That's our righteous works apart from us understanding that our righteousness comes from outside of ourselves. Hello. Look at Galatians 2.16. Galatians 2.16, less graphic, but it's clear. It says, knowing that a man is not 
justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ. Even we, you know, Paul is saying this, and Paul is a Jew of Jews. He's a guy that was a Pharisee. I mean, this was a guy that really kept the law. And he said, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So what does that scripture show us? Well, first of all, Isaiah shows us our righteousness is as filthy rags. This scripture shows us our works cannot justify us. Go, um, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. It tells us, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so again, we are saved by grace, not works. And Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. It says here, it says, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy. Do you hear that? Not because of what we did. God didn't, I, I love saying this, God did not save us because we're so cute. <clears throat> God did not save us because we are so amazing. He saved us because of his righteousness and because of his mercy. But according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so... Here's the thing when we're talking about the bad news. Until we understand that we are not good enough to earn our place in heaven, we will depend on our good works instead of depending upon our good Savior. See, when we think that we can earn our way into heaven, when we think, when someone thinks that they're good enough, they're going to trust their good works. I have conversations with guys, you know, and, and, and trying to share with them, and it always goes back to, you know, uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm not really a bad guy. You know, I'm not really hurting anyone. I just live with my girlfriend. Right? I'm not talking about, you know, anybody in here. I'm talking about people that, you know, are unsaved. I'm talking, you know, that, that's what I'm talking about. You know, people that I have conversation with. Yeah, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're having sex. We're doing all this kind of stuff. Okay, well, that doesn't glorify God, huh? I don't know. That, that sounds like it's sin to me, doesn't it? Oh, you know, I'm just, I, you know, I, I just, I, I lust over women all the time, but I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not bad. By whose standards? Right? I just have a foul, you know, talking to people, have a foul mouth, can't talk without, you know, dropping some F-bombs and just, I mean, just, really? I mean, that, all of that doesn't bring glory to God, right? Like, there's an issue with that. And so what we have here is we have this reality. And so the bad news leaves us, and, and I, feel the, I feel the hopelessness in the room. I mean, hello, right? It leaves us hopeless. Like, what am I going to do? Like, how do I, you know, how do I get out of this, right? And it leaves us hopeless, you know, because man by himself is helpless to save himself. The hopelessness creates a void so great that only God can fill. The second point is this. And the good news, and this is the good news as well, is that the good news makes the bad news irrelevant. Say that with me. The good news makes the bad news irrelevant. Put in parentheses there when you believe it. See, because the bad news is relevant, it needs to be preached clearly because people will not understand their need for God. People will come to God just to fix an issue in their life. People will come to God just to make something right, but they're not coming to God because they need to be made right. And so what needs to happen is people need to hear this bad news, right? Especially those people that are telling you they're good enough. Especially those people who are saying, well, I'm okay. You know, I go to church or I do this or I do that. None of that stuff makes you saved. 
It is truly believing in a way that changes your life. And so the good news, the good news is, is the very simple and magnificent story of what God in his love has done for us that we might know him and belong to him forever. The good news is all about Jesus and his finished work. Someone say amen to that. The good news is all about Jesus and his finished work. Now listen, we just went over the bad news, right? Typically I do this in like five minutes. I did it in like 20, something like that. I don't know, I lost track of time. But anyway, y'all give me about 20 more minutes, right? 20 more minutes and we'll be done, I hope. At least we'll be done with this point. But anyway, here's the thing. The reality is, the good news is all about Jesus, right? The bad news starts with God, right, being, being a good creator, and it goes and it focuses in on man and our sin and our sinfulness and our inability to save ourselves. But here's the thing. I dealt with all of those issues that we have, and so God is the highest. It, knowing God is the highest level of life any of us can attain because everything meaningful, satisfying, and productive in our lives flows from the working knowledge we have of who God is and what he has done for us us right the most important thing is that we know God and so who is Jesus now this is so important because if it's all about Jesus the correct understanding of who Jesus is is the foundation of the correct understanding of the gospel know this please Jesus is not just the son of God in other words he's not just God's son right and it's a, it's not like that he is not just an angel or the angel of the Lord he is not I want to emphasize this he is not Satan's brother hello he is not just a prophet. He is not just a good teacher. Jesus is God the Son come in the flesh as Savior, fully God, fully man at the same time. Now, we talked about this last week, and so I won't go. I'm just going to read this real quick. God is spirit. He is intangible. He is one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They are co-equal, co-eternal, and he is a plurality and a unity. We talked about that in depth last week, and so if you didn't hear the message, you should. Way above our pay grade to fully understand. But from the Old Testament to the New, he's revealed himself as that. And so look at this. The good news rests upon the deity and humanity of Jesus. And so Isaiah 9, 6. Let's look at that scripture really quick. Isaiah 9, 6. It says, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So you know when this prophecy was written? This prophecy was written, and it was speaking about Jesus 700 years prior to Jesus declaring, prior to Jesus coming on the scene. That's pretty amazing, right? 700 years this prophecy was given. And so here's, here's why this is so important. This is talking about the virgin birth. And so let's look at Isaiah 7:14 as well. Isaiah 7, 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel or God with us. Now the virgin birth is important because only a sinless sacrifice can substitute for sinful man. Hear this. If Jesus is not sinless, he has a sin problem like us. If Jesus is not sinless, he can't save you. So we have these prophecies of Scripture, and there's a bunch of New Testament fulfillments of this. And let's look at Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. What does it show us? It shows us not only was Jesus the last scripture we looked at, not only that Jesus is God, right? Not only that Jesus is born of a virgin, but also this here. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points, say all points, tempted as we are, yet without, without sin. 
And so we see that what? He was sinless. He is born of a virgin. He is sinless in his behavior. So not only did he overcome the, temp- uh, the, the, the temptation of sin, but he was born sinless. And so we have this clear that he does this. And then the last scripture here that we'll look at at this, at this portion is Matthew 20 and verse 28. And this scripture shows us what? Just as the Son of Man did not come to be, ser- be, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, it shows us what Jesus wanted to do, right? What Jesus came to do. His purpose was what? To give his life a ransom for you and I. To pay a price for our salvation, right? And so what we see in, the, in, 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 these, in these scriptures here is God's plan in his son. And so we know what the son is. So the good news reveals that Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection, And so we looked at the bad news, and so let's look at this. Jesus, the death of Jesus, dealt with man's sin problem, right? We have, man has a sin problem. So how do we deal with the sin problem? I want you to see that Jesus is the answer to that sin problem. So Jesus became our substitute, as the scripture shows us. This principle is revealed in the Old Testament, in Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, the annual Passover feast, and in the daily sacrifices made by the Jewish people to address sin. Let's look at Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 11. And it says here, it says, For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, meaning enemies of God, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 tells us, you knew no sin, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so the first scripture we looked at, it shows us that Jesus took our place on the cross to suffer for our sins, to deliver us from the wrath of God. Second Corinthians shows us clearly what happened on the cross. This scripture is known as the great exchange. God goes on the cross. Jesus, the son, goes on the cross, sinless, sinless savior. He goes on there and we, he makes an exchange for us. He gives, he takes our sin. He dies in our place so he can give us his righteousness. So he can call us sons and he can call us daughters. And then, and then um, Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. Matthew chapter 26, th- verse 39, it says, he went, all, he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it, po- if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What is this talking about here? This is Jesus praying and showing us his anguish over our sin, the cup that he's asking the Lord to pass from him. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2. It says here, it says, and he himself is the propitiation or the substitute for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And I think 1 John 4, the next one there, 4.10. It says, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so we see that Jesus does what? And look at this last verse here in John chapter 8. In this this particular point in dealing with our sin problem, John chapter 8, verse 31 to 36. It says here, it says, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word and you are my disciples indeed, 
and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And so Jesus deals with our sin problem, and he wants to, he shows us here that he wants, just like he was trying to deliver those people that were there that didn't want to hear it, he was trying to deliver them from their slavery to sin. They didn't want his freedom. But Jesus offers us freedom from what? From the sin. He deals with our sin issue. The resurrection of Jesus, which is a scripture that we looked at, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is what it's pointing to, is the resurrection of Christ. It deals with man's death problem. So we have a sin problem. Jesus addressed that. Now his resurrection deals with our death problem. Look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 24. It says, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So why is it not possible that Jesus could be held by death? It shows us death couldn't hold Jesus because death has no power where there is no sin. Are you here? Death could not hold Jesus in the grave because there was no sin. He chose to die. He gave his life as a ransom. He isn't held down there like you and I and we die. You know why we die? Because we're born sinful. That's why we die. Not so with Jesus. Jesus died because he chose to give his life. John chapter 17 verse 3. We read this scripture last week, but just as a reminder. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so again, we talk about eternal life. The death problem that we have is answered by the eternal life that God gives us in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8 verse 11. It says to us, he says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And so again, this shows us the power of the resurrection that is operating in our lives as believers. Second Corinthians chapter four and verse 14, it says, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. And so we see here, it shows us the promise of eternal life and the last portion of scripture that we'll look at as far as dealing with the death problem is second timothy chapter chapter 1 verses 8 through 12 and it says this it says therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our lord nor of me as prisoner but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of god who has saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to our works but according to his own purposes and grace which was given to us in christ jesus before time began but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day." And this scripture shows us that Jesus abolished death, death, giving us immorality. And so the good news is what? It is that Jesus sacrificed, his sacrifice addressed our sin issue once for all, according to these scriptures. This should be encouraging. Hebrews chapter 10, 10 and the resur resurrection address our sin problem. And finally, we're not going to look at these scriptures, so you guys don't have to worry about these that I'm going to say right now. But finally, Jesus' sinless life addressed our good works problem. And if you write these scriptures down, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 to 25, and 1 John chapter 3 and verse 5. 
And so all the problems that we have under the bad news condemnation, God addresses and the good news, and, and, and he shows us that, hey, you don't have to worry about the sin problem because what? Because God dealt with that on the cross. You don't have to worry about the death problem because God dealt with that in the resurrection. And you don't have to worry about the good works problem because Jesus was sinless. Jesus did not sin, as we saw in the book of Hebrews, and we can see in these other scriptures. And because he was sinless, we no longer have to worry about trying to earn our way into heaven because you know what even though we may miss the mark he never misses the mark even though we may fall short he never falls short he always completes and always fulfills his purposes and his plans in this good news and so my third point and this is my last point here i promise we're going to get out of here the gospel gives us say this with me with me the gospel gives us new life new hope and real assurance you see, when you and I respond in faith and repentance to the gospel, we are born again. Which, what does that mean that we're born again? It means that we are given new life. It means that God deals with, again, all of these other issues. He gives us new life. He, he, brings about, he brings about this new nature in us. And so now I'm no longer under the condemnation of a sinner. I'm no longer God's enemy, right? I still miss the mark, but that doesn't mean that I live in that place, right? That's what the scriptures teach us. And so what we have here is we see that we are justified before God. We are given a right standing before him and a new identity. That's what it means. When I come and I put my faith in Jesus Christ, no longer did God know me by the man that I used to be. He no, longer, he, he no longer sees me as that person. See, here's the thing with God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness is much more amazing than our forgiveness because you would think that God wouldn't be able to forgive like this, but he does. What he does is he literally throws our sin as far as the east is from the west. You know how far that is? They'll never touch. That's how far it is. And so from where God stands, he doesn't see you as that person anymore. He doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't say, hey, I forgive you, but I remember what you did. You know that kind of forgiveness because you probably offered it to someone. Hello, somebody. <sighs> like, I forgive you. Yes, I forgive you, but I never forget what you did. Even if I never bring it up to you, it's something every time I see you, I think about it. I see you. <laughs> uh -uh. But God's forgiveness is not like that. God forgives us once and for all. He says, I'm not going to ever bring up your past against you. I'm never going to throw what you did in the past. I'm not going to do that. And the moment you ask God for forgiveness, he forgives. That's what the scripture said. First John, right? 1, 8, 9, and 10. Remember that grace sandwich? Right? If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just. And so this is what the scriptures teach us. And so, and, and so here's the question, and, and, and I promised I would address this question, and so that's why I'm going to address it because someone asked it to me, and I told him that I would. So I am going to be faithful to answer this question. Because they asked me, they said, are we sinners or saints once we repent and put our faith in Jesus for salvation? Are we sinners or saints once we put our faith in Christ Jesus? And I thought about this, this question. I mean, I've thought about it because I've been hearing this question for a while. And I really never wanted to, you know, pay much mind to it because I just think that I know the answer. I think common sense would say yes. 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 Right? But I know you don't want me to just leave you there, right? But here's the thing. I was reading the scriptures in my, in my morning devotional, and I came across a portion of scripture where Jesus is talking to his disciples. And you guys have this scripture, right? Um, Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. Did I give you that one? Yeah? No? <laughs> Matthew, Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Look what it says. It says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it will be open. 
Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? Now look at this. If you then, what does it say? Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now I want you to think about the audience that Jesus is speaking to here. He's speaking to his disciples. He's teaching his disciples about prayer. And he says, you being evil. Now notice, no one was like, hey, I'm not evil. Right? No one's like, no, 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 I'm righteous. No, no, nobody jumped up and like, you know, threw the gauntlet down like, nope, Jesus, I can't walk with you anymore. You call me evil. Because what is Jesus talking about? He is saying that we have this sinful nature. That's what he's saying. He's not saying that you're, you know, this, this, this evil crazy. That, does, that is not what he's communicating here. He is simply communicating the heart of man. All men. We are all sinful by nature, by birth. We talk about that all the time. So when we talk about this, are we sinners or saints? Well, we are, our, our sinful nature is still there, right? That's what the scriptures teach, right? This is what the scriptures tell us as well. The scripture says that every word be established by two or three witnesses. And some of my really smart guys will be like, well, you know, Matthew chapter 7, it was before the cross. So what about after the cross? So turn with me to Romans chapter 7, verse 14 through, through like 25. We've got a lot of scripture to read here, but I promise you we're only going to one more place, and then I'm going to close in prayer for us. Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, verse 14 to 25. And you guys have that one as well. But I want you to turn there because I want you to read this along with me. So it says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. Now, now, now can we pause for a moment? I, I just want to pause for a moment. How many of y'all think you're more spiritual than the Apostle Paul? Come on, somebody? Just saying. Like, I know I'm not more spiritual than the Apostle Paul. I, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty positive of that, right? This is him talking. He's not talking about someone else. He's talking about himself. This is him, you know, and, and I love um, Pastor Dan Holland. Him and I were talking about this particular portion of Scripture. And it's like when you go to, you know, Romans chapter 1 through 6, you see certain things that are there that are just beautiful, amazing stuff, you know, about the grace of God, the gospel. And then you go to chapter 8 and, you know, on through and you see amazing stuff. And it's like chapter 7 is what you don't want to see. You know, when you look at a production, and this is the way that he gave the, gave the picture, when you look at a production, like on stage, everything looks amazing, right? Right? Looks beautiful. Go backstage. Especially in those places where there's a stage in the background, right? There, it's a mess back there. And you know what Paul was doing? He was opening the curtain. And he was saying, this is what's going on in the background. While I'm preaching this gospel, while I'm living for the glory of God, while I'm doing the things that God has called me to do, this is what's happening. He's communicating. He's saying, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I want you to understand, the Apostle Paul never negates the reality of sin dwelling in our members. Because as long as we are on this earth, sin will dwell. But now, let me tell you something, sin doesn't reign. There's a difference. There's a difference between sin dwelling and sin reigning. And I don't ever want you to hear whenever I say sinner that I'm saying sin reigns. Because sin does not reign if you are a believer. If you're not a believer, sin reigns. 
But if you are a believer, sin dwells, but it doesn't reign. And there may be moments, I'm going to let you know, you're going to see this here, that it seems like sin is reigning, but it's not reigning. It's a moment of dwelling, and it's a battle that's going on. But here we go. So he says, so he says, but the sin that dwells in me, for I know that in me, that is what? In my flesh, nothing good. Oh, my goodness. I don't know how clear that could be, but anyway. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. Continue on. It says, for the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. That's pretty clear, right? There's a battle that's going on, right? There's, there's moments, I mean, I, look, I'm just asking this question. I know, I know, I know, I didn't ask y'all to raise your hand how many of y'all played the lottery. But how many of y'all can identify with Paul? Just raise your hand, I mean, just be honest. How many can, I, I mean, just some moments. I'm not talking about you're like out there crazy sinning, like beating people up, killing people. I'm not talking about that. Just like moments that you just, I mean, something slips out of your mouth and you're like, man, how did that happen? You know, sometimes, you know, you walk into a situation. I, I, can, I can confess myself. I've prayed. I've literally, literally, I have prayed about situations I know I'm going to experience. And I've played it out in my mind and I'm like prepared. And it never, and it doesn't turn out the way that I prepared for it. I end up acting a fool, saying something I shouldn't, doing something I shouldn't have done. I'm like, glory to God, this is crazy. And then Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am. Now look, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now he doesn't leave us hopeless. Look at this. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Romans chapter 8 gives us the antidote and the, and, and, and the fact that we're liberated from this sin, right? But, here, but here's what I said. I said every word should be established by two or three witnesses. So we have the Apostle Paul that shows us that even after conversion, and anybody who is, who is, who is really serious about reading their Bible will know that he's not talking about pre-conversion here. He's talking about after conversion. People got to do like, you know, they got to do all kind of hoop jumps to try to explain away a scripture. Because I just think that that's ridiculous. If I can't read the Bible with some common sense and say, well, this is what the Bible is saying. Like, you know, he started writing to the church. Like, all of a sudden, is he writing to sinners? I don't know. When did that happen? It's kind of like me. I'm talking to you right now. Am I going to all of a sudden change conversation and talk to someone else? No, I'm talking to you. Right? So, same thing here. I'm just saying, just want to throw that in there. So, he asked this question. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members. And what Paul said? He said there's a battle that's going on. And, and James is coming along and he's saying, listen, where, where do these fights come from among you? It's because there's something going on in your members. He said, you lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. He says, adulterate. Now, this is rough. Adulterers and adulteresses, that's worse than sinners. I'd much rather be called a sinner than an adulterer or adulteress. I'm just saying, if you give, give me a choice, call me a sinner, please. Adulterers and adulteresses, why? Because adultery is symbolic of what? Idolatry. It's symbolic of worship of something else, and that's what he's doing. He's pointing out to them, look, man, you guys are worshipers of something else. It's self, that's something else. 
And he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Look at this. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Now listen, I close this point with this, saying this. Look, the bottom line is that you and I have been given a new identity in Christ. The reason why the Apostle Paul never opened a book with like, hello sinners. <laughs> to all the sinners in Corinth, I wanted to say this and... <laughs> It's because we have a new identity. For those of you that went through gospel, the, the, what's, what's the book we just went through? Gospel what? Identity. Gospel identity. There you go. I was like, I think chapter 9 dealt with gospel identity, and it dealt with this exact topic. It talks specifically about sinners and, 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 and how we are born into sin, and we continue to have this sinful nature, but now we are given a right standing with God, and God no longer sees me as what? As sinner, as enemy, and I should not walk around with my head down, oh, woe is me, I'm such a sinner, right? I shouldn't walk around like that because I'm not defeated because of all the other scriptures that we just read, glory to God. Because of everything else that Jesus did. And so I want you to get that, is that we are saints by identity. And you know why the gospel, and this brings me to the next question here, is that I'm being sanctified by God's word and spirit, and, 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 it's, and he is at work in me, making me more like Jesus, empowering me to be a clearer image bearer of God. So do we still need the gospel once we are saved? If so, how? And the other part of the question is, how does the gospel change us, keep us, and empower us? What I want you to know is that Paul says that the gospel is the power of God under salvation for all who believe. Are you here? The gospel is the power of God. Say the power of God. The scripture says the gospel is the power of God. When I preach the gospel, the power of God is manifesting because of what? Because I'm great? No, because the gospel is great. That's the reality. When I believe the gospel, it's not just me believing a message, it is me experiencing the power of God in my life. Are you here? See, the day that I gave my life to Jesus, it was because the power of God gripped my heart. The power of God encountered me, and God changed me and brought me from death to life. That's a beautiful thing. So as a Christian, what happens? As a Christian, I continue to revel in the gospel, remembering my new identity in Christ, being reminded of that. And what is it that happens? Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And so as my faith increases, my trust in what God communicates, my identity becomes more and more transformed, and I become more and more like the one who said, I am a saint, I am a son, I am a daughter, I'm not a slave, I'm not in bondage. That's what happens. So as we are in the gospel, as we continue to revel in the beauty of the gospel, that's what God does for us. So we need to be reminded all the time. I was sharing again. I shared this last week, I think, or the week before. Look, when I, when I look at the sinner stuff, you know what I do? I rejoice, man, because God delivered me from that. He set me free. But you know what I also do? I rejoice because I'm a new creation. I rejoice because I'm new because of what Jesus did. And here's what happens. This is what the gospel does for me, and I hope it does for you. The gospel does two things for me. One of them is it humbles me on my best day. 
and it raises me up on my worst day. You see, on my best day, I'm reminded, I ain't all that. On the day that I didn't miss prayer, on the day that I read all my scriptures, on the day that I'm meditating on the ones that I'm trying to memorize, on the day that I love my wife to the best of my ability and my understanding, on the day that I didn't raise my voice at my children, at the, on, on those days, I'm humbled because, God, you brought me through. I was only able to do this because of your grace. And you know what I'm reminded of that? In the gospel. But you know what? On the day when I, when I don't pray, on the day when I'm not in the scripture, on the day when I'm a jerk to my wife, on the day that I raise my voice at my kids, on the day that I, you know, say something that I didn't want to say, or the day that I think something I shouldn't think, you know what the gospel does? It raises me up and says, you're still a son. It raises me up and it says, listen, I paid a price for those sins. Turn from them. Trust me. Confess them. It doesn't ever give me a pass to live how I want to live. Amen? Amen. Closing is this. My big question for you. Do you believe the gospel? The bad news about yourself and the good news about Jesus. That's the big question. Let's all stand to our feet. Let us pray together. Praise the Lord Jesus. As your heads are bowed and as your eyes are closed, if you're in this place today and you are not sure where you stand with God, you're in this place today, maybe you haven't made a commitment to Jesus, maybe you're just not walking with him, and today you say that you want to make a commitment. Today you realize that you are in desperate need of his saving grace. He's here today to save you. All you have to do is call on his name. All you have to do is say, God, forgive me my sins. God, I recognize that I can't do it on my own. Ask him to fill you with his spirit and make a commitment to walk with him from this day forward. That's what he asks. That's what he asks. And if you're a believer in this place and you're just, you're struggling you need to be reminded of your new identity in Christ. I hope this has encouraged you and that you realize that you are a child of the Most High God. Continue to walk with him in his power and in his grace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your might. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your grace and your goodness that is at work in our lives. I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for it being the motivation for our affection toward you. I thank you, Lord God, for directing us toward you, for leading us in a relationship with you. I thank you for each person in this place, Lord God. You alone know the hearts of men. And so I pray, Lord, that you would draw the hearts of those that are separated from you, those that know, Lord God, that they need you. I pray that they would not leave this place without repenting of their sin, without trusting you fully. I pray, Lord God, for those in this place, Lord God, that are struggling in their identity. I pray that they would find their identity in you completely. I pray that you would break chains of bondage. I pray, Lord God, that you would set the captives free. I pray, Lord God, that you fill with the power of your Holy Spirit those in this place afresh, my God. I pray that we would walk in the victory that the gospel affords us and that your name would be glorified in each and every one of our lives, Father God. I pray that you would use us, Lord, as we worship and adore your name, that you would use us to bring you glory, that you would use us to bring you honor, that you would use us to bring you praise, for you are a great and glorious and wonderful God. I thank you for this, Lord God, and I pray all of these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Come on, give God a hand of praise. He's worthy.